Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Cape Cod townspeople are united in vocal opposition to a proposed new machine gun range. Plus, do Rhode Islanders care if political candidates are practically brand new residents in the Ocean State? And a New Hampshire bill would throw away the ballots of voters who failed to provide IDs within 10 days of an election. These stories and more during our regional news roundtable. Later in the show, Cole Chen isn't really at home anywhere, but for many reasons, the biracial college dropout feels more comfortable aimlessly drifting in rural China. Unwelcome is a slow boil of a novel that follows Cole's journey to be the young man he imagines himself to be. It's our May selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me remotely, Arnie Arneson, host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson from WNHN. Hi, Arnie. It's a pleasure to join you again, Kelly. Same here. Ted Nisi, politics and business editor and Target 12 investigative reporter for WPRI in Rhode Island. Thanks for joining us, Ted. Thanks for having me, Kelly. And Steve Junker, managing editor of news at CAI on Cape Cod. Welcome, Steve. Hi, Kelly. Glad to be here. I am so glad to have you, and I'm starting with you. A lot of discussion, not all of it, in support of a machine gun range to be located on the Joint Base Cape Cod. It seems that all of the the nearby communities are quite upset about the possibility, not only of there being a gun range located there, but also that to make it happen, there has to be clear-cutting of a lot of trees. I want to just play before you respond to it. This is a concerned citizen speaking at a joint Cape Cod machine gun range forum in 2021. I certainly have questions about the trees coming down. And yes, I'm very appreciative of the environmental studies. But at the end of the day, I guess I feel like if all these studies that you've been doing for years and years, if they were so very clear, then why are there so many organizations that are still opposed to it? And you can answer that question, Steve Junker. (laughs) (laughs) I can try to answer that question. Uh, I think that even just on the face of it, to give people an idea of, of what's being proposed here, the scale of it, I think, put a lot of people on the back foot here. They're talking about clear-cutting 170 acres to create an eight-lane machine gun range for guns to fire a mile, you know, a mile in distance. And then around that one-mile open space for the range, they have a, an enormous, what it's called a safety area, you know, around it in case any ammunition, any bullets fly beyond that. 
so, so the scale of it is one thing in terms of an environmental impact and, and habitat loss. And then uh, there's a lot of other impacts that towns are very worried about. And I think probably not least of which is that this range would be sited atop the aquifer that supplies drinking water to all of this region, to the Upper Cape. And there's already been a history of contamination of this water by activities on the military base, which required decades and more than a billion dollars of taxpayer money to clean up. So, and it's still not fully cleaned up. So I think a lot of the towns around the base all of the towns around the base actually have now passed motions kind of uh, opposing this. Uh, the base itself, the National Guard, they say they need this machine gun range to train soldiers without sending them to the next nearest training site, which is 270 miles away in Jericho, Vermont. Uh, mm. but, but even that raises questions to folks. They, they, they want to know what the National Guard is, is doing, you know, firing machine guns over a mile in range and, and why it has to be done on Cape Cod. And, and there's questions about noise. There's a public school that's located just outside of this zone that would be hearing the gunfire from the range. People are concerned about that. Uh, a, lot, a lot of questions here for sure. So who makes the decision finally? Well, that is even one of the questions at the heart of all of this. This is a story with legs. It started uh, almost two years ago and, and it's been creeping along and the decision process has been part of the story because it, it seemed in the beginning that the Massachusetts Army National Guard kind of sprang this whole plan on uh, the surrounding town saying, we've done all the research, we've done all the studies, it's ready to roll. And the, and the town said, wait, wait, what are you talking about? And kind of brought the process to a halt. And, uh, and in some ways, they've kind of broken the process up into pieces. And right now, it's all waiting on the federal government, the Environmental Protection Agency, which said that they wanted to take a closer look at the Guard's own environmental study with a more unbiased eye, take a look at whether this could potentially impact the aquifer, the water, drinking water underneath the range. And that is supposed to be released. It was supposed to be released this spring, so everybody was on edge for this. Now the EPA says that maybe they'll be releasing it before the end of the year, which kind of mm. pushes it back. But everybody from the town levels to the state delegation to the congressional representatives here and the state representatives for the Cape have been weighing in, trying to push the process and, and kind of slow it really and, and try to decide what's gonna happen. But a lot of people are pointing to the governor saying that mm. the governor could be the person with the ultimate say in this. And, and there's a couple of reasons for that. No kidding. Um, before you respond, Arnie, let me point out that the uh, joint base Cape Cod folks are just started up uh, public tours again with an eye toward, they say, having more uh, trust uh, among all the people who live nearby the base. And I want people to see for themselves what goes on there. And I imagine it's uh, part of the campaign um, to talk to people about locating the gun range there as well. But uh, they hadn't had public tours for 20 years, and they just started last fall. Well, a uh, couple of things. I'm doing a little bit of the cost-benefit analysis here. And so they could actually schlep to Vermont. I guess it was, what is it, 240 miles. And how often do you do you know, machine gun practice? That's number one. And you have a place to go in Vermont, which is six hours away. It's a little inconvenient, but it's already there. It's existing. People know about it. You don't have to go through all this hassle of you know the EPA coming in and everything else. And I guess the other thing is, is that one of the questions that's being asked is whether it's compatible with wildlife. Sounds like it isn't compatible with human life. 
I mean, isn't it interesting? We're suddenly worried about the, you know, the compatibility and you're hearing so many people in the neighborhood talking about the noise, talking about the potential pollution, talking about the fact you're going to be clear cutting. It sounds like it's not compatible with the community and you already have a, pl a, a place to go in Vermont. It may be a little inconvenient, but we're talking machine gun range. I mean, that's not going to be something that you're going to be doing 24 seven. And I think since you've got a pre-existing place called Vermont, it probably is something you could still access and still train the personnel you're seeking to train. Hmm. Ted Nisi, this is the kind of stuff you'd be looking under the rock about. Uh -huh. I wonder if uh, you think, they think, somebody thinks, that this is a kind of a coup for Massachusetts to have a range like this. Okay, so Vermont is nearby, but to have your own, maybe you draw people from other states. Yeah, I mean, I, I my reporter brain kind of goes in two directions on this. On the one hand, like Arnie was just saying, you know, for those of us who don't live on Cape Cod, we almost think of the whole elbow as a national park, right? And I know that it's a it's a place where people live year round and, and there's lots of normal life there for, but it almost feels like every square inch of Cape Cod is so precious that if this is something that can be done not on Cape Cod, you know, should Cape Cod be being preserved for just the things that are special and unique to Cape Cod? On the other hand, I will say as someone who covers a lot of development issues, I can't help but also think about the critiques we're hearing more and more of nimbyism, um, you know, not in my backyard. And mm -hmm. I want to be clear, this is a machine gun range, not a you know affordable housing development. But you can kind of see here, if you imagined this was, you know, a housing development or something, how the many, many, many layers of government review that are available can tie a project up. In this case, the neighbors are probably quite happy about it. You have the EPA involved. You have a lot of political pressure to rethink this, and it's a unique project. But there can be a downside, I think, as we see in places like Rhode Island and Massachusetts, where it's now become almost impossible to build housing in a lot of places, and we see the pressure on rents and, and homes. And so, again, machine gun range, not affordable housing, it's very different. But the sort of ways you can tie a project up in endless government review is something we see far beyond just this machine gun range. Mm -hmm. Well, that's going to be interesting to watch. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm here with Arnie Arneson, host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson from WNHN, Ted Nisi, investigative reporter for WPRI in Rhode Island, and Steve Junker, managing editor of news for CAI on Cape Cod. We're discussing the latest news in the region you might have missed. Coming back to you, Ted, because the carpetbagger story is fascinating in Rhode Island. So you have all these people that love your state so much that they want to run, even though they haven't lived there very long. Yeah, we have, you know, we have, we have a bunch of big election races in Rhode Island this year. The governor's office is on the ballot. The second congressional district that longtime Democrat Jim Langevin is retiring. So that's open. And yeah, we have this unusual thing where fairly prominent candidates, basically, there's no way around the fact that they have not lived in Rhode Island. The two top examples where people are pointing to, one from each party, actually, in the congressional race, a woman named Sarah Morgenthau, she was serving in the Biden administration in Washington and just moved full time to North Kingstown to Saunderstown, Rhode Island, said she's running for that second district seat Jim Langevin is giving up. And, you know, she has really struggled to kind of prove that she as a person has any kind of roots in the state. Her family's owned a summer home there for 40 years, which she points to and says they always would come here in the summer. She got married in the backyard. It was a constant and that's certainly true, but 
you know, she was actually on WPRI recently for a five minute interview that the New York Times called it brutal because um, she was asked, you know, have you ever lived here year round? And she stumbled and said, well, I've, I've paid property taxes for 40 years. And then our anchor Kim Clooney and asked, well, have you, did you go to school here? Did your kids ever go to school here? And she acknowledged, no, nobody in her immediate family had ever gone to school in Rhode Island. So, you know, she's struggling with those questions. Uh, the Providence Journal even was quizzing candidates about the second district and called her out for reading what they said appeared to be a Wikipedia article verbatim Oof, to answer a ouch. question, even though she claimed she wasn't Googling. Um, that's what she has said. So that's, that's, but she, I should say she's the second best funded candidate and has a lot of national democratic connections. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't be writing her off, but that's been a tough stretch of headlines. But outside of the state, to be clear, right? Yes, right. yes, yes, yes mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. Sorry, good point, Callie. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, and I should say she only registered to vote in the state early this year. Mm-hmm. And then on the Republican side, you have a similar story. Ashley Kalis, who had been running a COVID testing company that got a state contract last year. Uh, she worked for the governor of Illinois a number of years ago and ran a plastic surgery practice with her husband. She bought a house in Newport last year and registered to vote here in January. And now she's the front runner for the Republican nomination for governor because they don't really have a deep bench on the Republican side. And uh, she's got a bunch of money and, and is already spending it. She's already running TV ads. And you know, she claims she always wanted to live in Rhode Island. She just hadn't been able to because of the business climate, which is why she's running. Um, but once again, you know, there's just, it, it's just pretty clear. There's no paper trail of her having any connection to the state other than her husband going to medical school here before they were together. And so in both cases, the debate now is, well, you know, the Republicans are rallying around this woman. They see her as compelling and she's got money and they don't have a lot of other candidates. And Morgenthau says, look, it's about what I can do for the district, not about how much of the year I've spent in Rhode Island. But on the hand, people saying, well, don't we want elected officials who've spent, maybe they haven't been here forever, but have spent some more than a year as at least registered voters in the state. So it's it's kicked off an interesting debate. And do voters care, the bottom line? That's a question. We're, we haven't had any polling yet. Um, certainly, I'd say on the Republican side, Kalis you know, a lot of Republicans rallying around her, they think, hey, why not try something new? You know, not everything's perfect in Rhode Island. We can get some ideas from out of state. I'd say there's more skepticism on the Democratic side uh, toward Morgenthau because people say, hey, wait a minute, you know, we're the dominant party here. We have plenty of candidates and we feel like you just got here. So we'll kind of see how that plays out in the coming months and, and where the voters land. Well, Steve Junker, I don't have to tell you that when you <laughs> live in Massachusetts, you can just barely get out the car and carpetbagger, and you will be eviscerated here. <laughs> I have to say, I'm listening to this thinking the same thing, Callie, because, uh, well, and it's not even so much of a political question sometimes, but a cultural question definitely on Cape Cod. You know, who is from Cape Cod and, and what does that really entitle to you to in terms of making pronouncements about, you know, the region and what works, what doesn't work? And uh, and and it even seems to be a moving target. When I first came here, I'm, I'm only here 20 years. People told me if I was here 20 years, I could be a Cape Codder. Now they, they <laughs> kind of shake their head and they say, no, no, that doesn't count anymore. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, it's 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 a good question. How long do you have to be there to really uh, have a clear view of, of how you can help? Well, and that's a funny thing, Steve, because Rhode Islanders, I mean, there's a bumper sticker down here. People, a lot of people have that says, I never leave Rhode Island, right? Um, <laughs> people are very tied to their Rhode Island. I'm, I grew up in Attleboro, which touches Pawtucket, Rhode Island. And yet people still say to me, well, you grew up in Massachusetts, like I was in some distant country uh, in Attleboro. <laughs> so, but, 
Who knows? You know, it's 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 a weird time in politics. All right. How about in New Hampshire, Arnie? Is this a huge issue? Oh, well, you're talking to a politician in recovery here. So uh, <laughs> let me tell you, I moved to New Hampshire in 1980. And in 1991, I decided to run for governor. And uh, I remember at one point in time, someone said to me, oh, you can't trust her. And someone said, why can't you trust Arnie? Because she's from New York. <laughs> <laughs> I said, don't I get credit? I gave birth to two babies at Cottage Hospital. You know, whatever. So, so yeah, I, I do think there is a, a sense of connection that's important. But I was, I was reading uh, the story about Callis. I was reading it initially, and I mean, she could be a cookie cutter for any Republican candidate for governor in any state in the nation. I mean, it was like everything she gave was a pat response. Plus, she's rich and she can be self-funded. And then as I was reading, I kept going on. I'm going, wow, she sounds a lot like DeSantis. She sounds a lot like DeSantis. And then at the end of the article, they ask her the question. It's like, who do you see yourself as the most similar to? And sure enough, she said, Ron DeSantis. And I'm thinking, wow, this is like an agent of Florida. So um, on the Republican side, I don't think it will be a much of a problem because as you pointed out, there's no bench and you need a bench in order to have a problem. Uh, on the Democratic side, however, there will be significant competition. I think what Morgenthau has going for her is obviously lots of money from outside, lots of political connections and a familiar last name. So if you're not really engaged in politics, you might recognize the name, you might see a lot of ads that surround that name, and it might be easy for you to do, except let's remember that the uh, primaries are the most activated and engaged political players that actually become involved. Mm, and I think point. as a result, despite all that money and despite that name recognition, she doesn't have enough connection to place. Okay. Well, let's move on, Arnie. There is a Senate Bill 418 passed by the House, which would require people registering to vote for the first time in New Hampshire on Election Day without an ID to use a separate new kind of ballot. It's uh, called an affidavit ballot, sometimes known as provisional ballot. After voting, they would have to mail their documentation proving their identity to the Secretary of State. Now, uh, if they fail to do so, their votes are voided. But really what this is about is potentially a shakeup in New Hampshire's positioning as the first primary because of how votes would be counted and who's, you know, who has a valid vote, blah, blah, blah. It's just it's looking for a problem that doesn't exist. But then again, the whole voter integrity thing is all about a problem that doesn't exist. And remember, we're one of those states that didn't do motor voter many decades ago. We did same day registration. And it turned out a lot of people like same day registration, but Republicans don't like voters. So if you don't like voters, you don't like same day registration. And anything that you can create to create an impediment to participating in the franchise is something they want to embrace. It's not surprising, but it's eye rolling. OK. Here's New Hampshire Republican Senator Bob Gaida and Democrat Senator Donna Susi arguing for and against the affidavit bill. The argument of violating people's rights, this protects the rights of legitimate voters, and we should violate the rights of those who vote illegitimately. They are corrupting the process. They are the ones who are defrauding the vote. When we have our first in the nation presidential primary, which we pride ourselves on holding so well, there's the potential for us announcing results on election night. And then 10 days later, depending on who's returned information, changing the results. All right. Pick it up from there. And by the way, we should say that the governor has not said um, whether or not he will veto the bill. Well, right now, the governor is always sort of threatening to veto, but he doesn't like to veto his Republican base. So he may threaten it, but not follow through. The problem is, is that with this provisional ballot, uh, the affidavit ballot, it, it takes a number of days in order to, you know, 
to certify the record. Therefore, instead of having a result on election night, you're gonna be waiting seven or eight days before you actually have an official result. That will be a problem for the presidential primary. It'll also be a problem for people in the military. Let me explain why. We have a September primary, but if you don't know for like seven or eight days, you know, who actually won the primary, but you have to send out ballots to people serving in the military around the world, they may get a ballot with someone on the ballot that didn't actually win the primary. Oh, God. Uh, duh. So, I mean, it's just, it's stupid. There's been no real example of anyone actually doing a bait and switch. It's never been a problem. They're creating a problem. This is all about delay and confusion. That's what this is about. This is not about voter integrity. And that's one of the, at least sort of the claims that you're hearing from the governor is that he's concerned about the primary, but his concern about the primary is about delay. What are you doing? And every time you delay a result, you actually sort of reinforce distrust of an election. And that's exactly what they want to do. There isn't a problem. They're creating a problem. And now they're making the problem worse. Well, one way they could make it worse, Ted Nisi, is if they mess up their first-in-the-nation primary status, which New Hampshire is clinging on to with bloody bare hands. So um, <laughs> this, you know, I'm, I know that uh, folks outside of the state are looking at this with great interest. Yeah, and a risky time, Callie, to be monkeying with your elections at all, because we know the Democrats have said they want to look at shaking up the first couple of states, and lots of states are circling and angling to see if they can get in there and, and supplant Iowa or New Hampshire. And so anything, any argument that can be made beyond the ones you already hear about the diversity of the two states, the representativeness of them, will only add to people saying that. It's it's interesting, too, because we, Rhode Island actually has been having these debates longer than a lot of blue states because Rhode Island actually passed a voter ID law way back in 2011 that was actually put forward by minority lawmakers. It was an unusual thing. But one thing I've taken away from watching the debate over that over all these years is that often what I wind up hearing on both sides is, you know, the people who don't like the voter ID law will say, look, we really have little to no evidence of any substantive problems with, you know, people voting who shouldn't, et cetera. But then the people who like the voter ID law will say, we also have no real evidence of it hampering any substantial number of voters casting their ballots. And so, you know, sometimes I think as a reporter, I wonder if there would be room for a truce between the two parties. So everyone could kind of agree, and I'm not trying to sound naive, but you know, the fundamentals of how we decide the elections, if that's going to be up for debate now and 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 this contested, it, it makes me worried for, you know, we know what we saw in 2020. Is that just going to get worse every time, every November now? Well, what I would say to that, Steve Junker, is that there are some states, that, as in Rhode Island, that have very specific, here's what you need for ID. But there are any number of states for which people can come with what you would think would be normal ID and cannot vote. And then I also always have to mention Texas, lovely Texas, where mm. a student cannot use their ID. But if you have gun registration license, you can vote. Uh, so, Junker, what do you think about um, this uh, interesting possibility of maybe New Hampshire messing up their their first in the nation. I tell you what, uh, this, this is one of the, uh, the those stories that I think to people who just follow news casually, they shake their head and they say politics, you know, and, and it smacks of politics. But I think behind it is the very real concerns about the franchise and eroding the franchise for people and the sort of incrementality of approaching taking away people's voting rights or making it that much harder for people to access their voting right. And, and and in that regard, it's it is bigger than just shaking your head and saying politics. It's it's about a real a real effort to to erode who can who can vote and how easily we can vote. I know. 
All right. Uh, back to you, Ted. Governor McKee, on the hot seat, some of this came to light from work that uh, you and your, your colleagues did, but essentially outside advisors wrote the blueprint, so we're told, for a controversial $5.2 million state contract that eventually went to his own subordinates, brand new consulting firm, which is really uh, uh, a little dicey. I'm, before you respond, I'm going to play this clip of Rhode Island Governor Dan McKee, who continues to defend his controversial state contract. There's nothing that is going to be, that's going to come out that's going to reflect on, on me uh, in a way uh, in these investigations, nor, nor my administration. The decisions that we made at that point in time were in the best interest of the people in the state of Rhode Island, and I stand by each and every one of those decisions. Um, we should mention, Edge, before you speak, that the feds are now looking into this. Yeah, Callie, this is a story, frankly, that became a much bigger story than I even expected when I was initially working on it with my colleagues. You know, we got wind last summer. We got a tip about a, a very unusual procurement process that had played out to hand out some federal COVID relief money. And what we found was that they had basically a contract had been repeatedly sort of revamped how they were giving it out and what they were doing. And it wound up going, as you said, to somebody who was the subordinate of a close outside advisor of Governor McKee. And they had founded this consulting company the same week he took office. And there was just this explosion of controversy when we did our first report, people saying, you know, especially in a place like Rhode Island, you know, this is insiderism, this is favoritism. Uh, the legislature started to look into it, we obtained more documents. And you know, at this point, it, it's pretty clear the governor and this advisor wanted this company to be hired, they did put it out for a competitive bid process. But that bid process, multiple in multiple ways did not go the usual way. And they wound up being given the authority to just give this contract out with the federal COVID money to this firm. They awarded them $5.2 million. They wound up canceling at the end of last year after spending, I think, a little under $2 million. But now, as you said, the state attorney general had already started investigating it. And now we know the FBI has joined the investigation and the attorney's office. And the governor has been extremely critical of you know, candidly of, of our coverage, of all news coverage of it, uh, saying he thinks it's unfair, that there was nothing wrong here, that this was perfectly valid and he had good reasons to hand it out. But, you know, he's come under bipartisan criticism for steering this contract in the view of many to that firm. And now, of course, the big question, he's up in the primary, as people might remember, he ascended to the governor's office when Gina Raimondo left to become U.S. Commerce Secretary. So he's facing a primary in September. So everyone wondering if we'll know the outcome of this FBI investigation before the vote. Well, you know, it's all back to trusting government officials, and that's really front and center right now in so many instances. So this is sad, I would say, if, if nothing else. Um, we'll find out what the results are soon, I, I guess. Steve, I'm going to jump to a story that uh, you highlighted about commercial trips for cod and haddock to be monitored to improve species recovery, which sounds like a good thing, except that the fishermen say 100 percent monitoring is too much. It's a burden. That's right. The fishing economy is still a big part of the region here. And this is a significant change for commercial fishers in New England. Now, all commercial trips in New England for many popular fish species, including things like cod and haddock and flounder, will soon require onboard monitoring to make sure that the catch is counted accurately. And there's two ways that that monitoring can be done. It can be done by cameras, what they call electronic monitoring, or by an in-person monitor that's somebody who goes along on the fishing trip and watches everything that happens. 
The rule change was announced last week at a regional fisheries meeting in Connecticut, but it's been on the table for a while. And of course, fishing monitoring is, is nothing new to the fishery uh, right now. And in recent years, it's been about 20 to 40% of the trips are monitored. This new proposal is for 100% of the trips, and that's what makes it really a, a big deal for fishermen. And the big question behind it, even as they've been considering this for a while, has been who's going to pay for it? And the fishermen saying that they just can't pay for this. You know, their their margins are so thin already, and they don't even want it. It's being forced upon them. So the federal government stepped forward and said they're going to pay for this for the first two years of the program. They've authorized the program for four years. And nobody's quite sure what happens beyond the first two years, but the expectation is that they'll come back and refund it. And then they'll take another look at it maybe after four years. Uh, the environmentalists, very, very happy about this. They've been pushing for this kind of monitoring for a long time. Concern is that fishermen, as they are out there catching, they sometimes will catch too much of a tightly controlled species, often that's cod, and then they may be dumping the dead fish overboard so that the vessel can keep fishing, saying it hasn't caught its limit yet. Uh, monitoring would prevent that. And the fisheries experts say that it'll just help them get a much better idea of what's happening with the health of the stocks. And really the goal here is to have healthy fishing stocks and have them return to a, a, as healthy as population as possible. And, and being able to enforce the regulations and follow along with what's happening is a big part of that. So uh, it, it's passed now and it's going to be, we're, we're moving to implementation. Wow. It'll be very interesting to see some of the results of that. Um, Arnie, you get the last word here. I just am befuddled by this proposal to increase the hours of 16 and 17 year olds can work during a school week. This seems odd. It's it's still in the process. I just called the state house before we came on the air. Um, look, we don't have enough workers. I mean, we're the second oldest state in the nation. We have like the lowest unemployment numbers. I mean, you need a microscope to see. I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh, we don't allow immigration anymore. It's, you know, we're still recovering from a pandemic. I was just at Market Basket and the two kids that were checking me out, you know, 14 years old. They were 14, but they looked four, but they were 14. Uh, so as a result, because employers are desperate for someone that'll bus tables, that'll work at the grocery stores, they basically have come in and said, you've got to be more flexible with the hours. And uh, and of course, you've got Republicans who are suddenly saying things like, I can't quote him exactly. I don't give a rats, you know what the word is, about the labor shortage. He said, I just don't want to see the government being a parent. That if we're going to worry about hours, let the parents sit down with the child and say, what's your work? work expectation? What's your homework expectation? Otherwise, let them work 24 hours a day. Let them work all night. And so there's a real tension here about protecting kids, uh, making sure they're not abused. Remember, we don't even have a minimum wage. We're at 725. So these kids are obviously, you know, could probably be paid significantly less. And uh, the question is, is it a government parent or is it child labor laws? How do you interpret it? What's your sense of the sentiment to support it or not? Uh, which way is this going? There is no question about the public sentiment. I think I think a lot of people would be concerned about these kids working too many hours. I think there is a concern by that. But the Republicans control the legislature. They don't care. They don't care. I mean, you can have a thousand people showing up and complaining. What we know is employers are desperate for workers. Here are clearly worker bees. These kids want to earn some extra cash. And I don't know whether the parents are going to be involved. The question is, should we set limits? And it's always a challenge to establish limits. But sometimes you need to do something. When kids can't vote, they can't get a driver's license, they can't go to war, but they can work you know, you know, 19 hours a day, there's a problem here. All right. With seconds to go, Steve and Ted, could this happen in Rhode Island or Massachusetts? Steve. 
Uh, you know, this story is so fascinating to me where we have such a labor shortage here on the Cape, particularly. Exactly. And uh, it made me go and look up what the labor laws are for Massachusetts, which I didn't even know. And it turns out, you know, teens under 18 can't work past 10 o'clock during the school year or past midnight July through Labor Day. So that's through the summer. So but even that's a far cry from what's being proposed there. And then and uh, I don't see something like that happening in Massachusetts. That's for sure. Yeah, same in Rhode Island. Doesn't unions, which are pretty influential around state house, are you know tend to be skeptical of these things to bring more supply into the labor market through something like younger kids going in to to compete with other workers? All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Fascinating, good stuff from all of you. I thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Kelly. Thank you, Kelly. Arnie Arneson is the host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson from WNHN. Ted Nisi is politics and business editor and Target 12 investigative reporter for WPRI in Rhode Island. And Steve Junker is managing editor of news for CAI on Cape Cod. Coming up, Cole Chen is writing a memoir about his experiences living in China as a young man. But what he is writing does not exactly reflect his reality. Estranged from his family and misunderstood by his acquaintances, Cole is looking for a place to settle and someone to share his life. But he's stymied by his self-delusion. Unwelcome is author Quincy Carroll's latest novel and our May selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.